0: Well, we will come to the last of this short little series that I'm doing uh, in preparation for covenant renewal. Uh, as I was looking through the, the covenant commitment that we'll all sign, God willing, in a few weeks' time, uh, the words of the second vow stood out to me. And uh, as we uh, will vow again, we will, we will reconfirm our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ as King and His authority over the society in which we live and over our lives and over the church And the second vow that we take says, in particular, despite the pressure of society, we recognize Christ's authority in the areas of sexuality, identity, marriage, the sanctity of life and the Sabbath day. In all things, we will seek his preeminence. Last week, we thought about the sanctity of life. A couple of weeks before that, uh, the scriptural teaching on the Lord's Day. And so today I want to take uh, together the issues of sexuality identity and marriage and consider what the Bible has to say about these things and what it is that we're submitting to when we say that we're submitting to Christ's teaching in these areas. Twelve-year-old Katie has recently begun secondary school. It was daunting, of course, but after a week or two, the bigger corridors and the the busier timetable don't seem so scary and she begins to settle in and and make some friends Then one day, Stacey, one of Katie's new friends, says that she'd like Katie to start calling her Sam and that she's transitioning to become a boy in line with her felt gender identity. A Christian employee in a city centre office gets the latest circular email in his inbox and it says, Happy International Pronouns Day goes on, for centuries we have been programmed to feel that there are two gender identities, male and female. However, gender identity and sex are two separate things. And so the email explains, you shouldn't assume that you know what a person's preferred pronouns will be based on their physical appearance. How can I be a pronoun ally? The email continues. It's quite simple really. When you meet someone for the first time, introduce yourself And let them know your pronouns. If someone asks you your pronouns, remember to thank them for asking, as it shows a sign of respect to you. And the employee reads reads this email and wonders quite what this has to do with accounting or computing or engineering. But there's the email nonetheless. You go to an ATM to withdraw some cash. And as you do so, you notice the big bold message on the computer screen. This bank supports pride. Pride. Why you would need to know that before you withdraw money from the ATM machine again, we don't really know. But none of these scenarios are fictional. With just a couple of names changed, they're all stories that I've heard or come across myself just the last few weeks. And after decades of intense propaganda, pressurising and lobbying from LGBTQIA groups, and I may have missed some letters because they keep adding on more, but these are the kinds of Scenarios that we're all living with on a sometimes daily basis because of the, the pressures and the propaganda that these groups have brought to bear. The message of the LGBT lobby, and I would just emphasise, friends, that there is such a thing as that lobby and it, doesn't, it shouldn't be equated with every individual you might meet who might struggle with a sense of identity or, or sexuality. Not everyone who struggles with their sexuality is signed up to all the militant beliefs of the LGBT lobby. So I just want to make that differentiation. But the message of the LGBT lobby, informed by the psychology of people like Sigmund Freud, is that sexuality is an identity. It used to be that sexual activity was something that you thought of people doing. We now hear about, about sexual identity. In other words, that it's who you are. It's who you are. And that, of course, is what makes it so hard for those of us who hold to the Bible's teaching on sex and marriage. Because by refusing to just go along with these new things, we're we're seen to be attacking the very existence of some individuals in our society. (coughs) And as Christians, we have to make as clear as we possibly can that we mean no ill will toward anyone when we explain our beliefs on these issues. In fact, it's because we are concerned for the well-being of our neighbours, of our neighbours, however they identify, that we hold true to what the Bible says. And of course, it's also out of love for God, our Creator, the Creator of men, women, sex and marriage, that we are also to hold true to what the Bible says about these things. So as we think about this whole question of sexuality and marriage and identity, I want to th- think again, following a similar outline to last week, I want to think first of all briefly about what the Bible teaches about these things. What the Bible teaches about these things. And first of all, uh, Genesis 2 tells us that marriage was the, the first human-to-human relationship that ever existed. Uh, that when God finished making everything else, He made the first man and the first woman and married them together together. And you'll have heard these reasons many times before, I'm sure, if you've attended uh, marriage ceremonies uh, in the RP Church or in other similar churches to ours. But briefly, three reasons why God created marriage. First of all, for companionship. For companionship. Genesis 2 verse 18 tells us that having created the world and created the first man, Adam, God declares then, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Uh, And that statement from God is of course not God realizing that he's made some mistake. It's God drawing attention to the fact that the companion that he would now give to Adam would be uniquely suitable for him. Uniquely fit for Adam in every way that Adam would have A friendship and a companionship with the woman that he couldn't have had with anyone or anything else. And so marriage, first and foremost, friends, is about a unique companionship. A companionship that can be experienced in other relationships to some degree. But a companionship that is uniquely experienced in marriage. And so men and women fit together and serve together and help each other In a unique God designed way. This is true physically as well as emotionally and practically, and it's obvious from the way that men and women are different and yet compatible, designed to fit together. So, marriage was created for companionship, it was also created for procreation, for procreation, for the bearing of children. Genesis 1.28, God's first instruction to Adam and Eve as a married couple was, be fruitful and multiply. And what we see throughout the scriptures and even throughout history is that heterosexual marriage is the God-designed setting in which children are to be raised and nurtured. I could quote from many different researchers and papers which have all come to the same conclusion on this subject, friends, that children do better and by extension, societies do better when they are raised in a stable home by a father and mother who are committed to each other and to them. Now that's not always the case, sometimes for legitimate reasons, sometimes for no fault of the spouse that is, or for the parent that is left. And children can still thrive, of course, but as a general rule, this is the way that God has designed it to be. As well as that, not every marriage leads to children and those marriages are no less precious and valuable. But whilst not every couple will have children, friends, every child will have a father and mother, biologically speaking. And as far as possible, that father and mother should be the ones to raise that child, to love them and care for them and prepare them for life in society. Then, the third reason, we could go into other reasons, but for the sake of time, just the last reason for marriage, (coughs) for the creation of marriage as we have it in Genesis 2, is an illustration. It's an illustration. It's for companionship, for procreation, and for an illustration. What I mean by that is that a good marriage is a living picture of the most precious relationship in the world, namely the relationship between Jesus Christ. And his church. Paul says in Ephesians five thirty one. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul says this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul quotes there from Genesis two verse twenty four. Uh, And and in doing so he says that he's emphasising that a husband and a wife are to stick together. That's what the word in the original means hold fast to. It's literally got the idea of glue. That a husband and a wife are to hold fast, stick together. And he says that, that marriage relationship is a picture of Christ and the church. Christ and the church are different obviously but they are made to fit together by the work that Christ has done for us, that he has given himself for us lovingly and self-sacrificingly. And Paul says that a husband is to imitate that self-sacrificial love as he leads and provides for his wife, not just practically, but emotionally and spiritually as well. The word husband actually has the sense of a gardener causing, his, causing the flowers in his garden to flourish because he cares for them properly so that in due season they they, they come out and they look beautiful and they're healthy and strong and that's what a husband is to do for his wife and if God provides also for his family and likewise the wife is to lovingly submit to to that loving leadership and to care for and provide for her husband and to encourage him as his closest companion on the earth. C.S. Lewis calls this the great dance, excuse me, the great dance of souls. What happens in a dance? The, The man leads and his partner follows and the two of them, no different, express themselves together and move together and fit together. And so this is God's design, friends. This is to be the context for every form of intimacy and for sexual intimacy and for companionship and for this unique friendship that God has designed, it's all to be found in a committed covenant marriage relationship. The remarkable thing is that the Bible's teaching of marriage has been universally recognised, albeit in imperfect ways, all throughout history. Virtually every religion and every civilised culture has always placed a high value on heterosexual marriage. Be it Judaism, Islam, Christianity, even some of the Eastern spiritualist religions, they have all recognized for thousands of years that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. It's not something that a political party came up with, it's not something that was invented in Britain or Rome or anywhere else. It is God's creation. And so rather than ever even bother to define marriage, societies have simply acknowledged marriage and accepted that this is what marriage is. But of course in recent years the situation has changed. With same-sex marriage legalized in the United States, United Kingdom, Ireland and various other like-minded nations from about 2013 onwards. So for nearly 10 years already in some places... Uh, same-sex marriage has been recognised legally. And so we find ourselves in a society that objects to the Bible's teaching on sexuality and marriage. And even some Christians and so-called churches now are beginning to cave under the immense pressure that the LGBT lobby has put upon society to not only accept a redefinition of marriage, but with it to accept and to celebrate all kinds of other aspects of homosexual lifestyle and different other variations of that lifestyle as if they're just normal and joyful and and harmless. And so for those of us seeking to remain faithful to the Bible's teaching on sexuality and marriage, we face several strong objections from the society that we live in today. So I want to deal with some of those objections. We thought about what the Bible teaches, albeit very briefly. But we want to think secondly about what the wor- how the world objects to what the Bible teaches about sexuality and marriage. And one of the first objections that you'll hear, particularly if you make your, your Christian faith known in this area, uh, people will say, well, well Jesus, Jesus never spoke about much less condemned homosexuality. Jesus never mentioned it. He never mentioned same-sex marriage or other sexual identities. So why are you trying to suggest that there's anything wrong with it if Jesus never even spoke about it? Well, those who make this objection fail to understand some fundamental truths. Firstly, they fail to appreciate that Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Trinity that has existed from all eternity. Jesus began his human existence in Mary's womb and then when he was born and lived on this earth. But Jesus before that had always existed as God. Paul says in Colossians 1.16 that by Jesus or through Jesus all things were created. So Jesus is the creator back in Genesis chapter 1. Jesus has always existed. And since Jesus is God, friends, that means that The words of Jesus are not confined to the Gospels. To Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Wherever you turn in the Bible you are looking at the words of Jesus. So for example. When we find God describing homosexual activity as an abomination. In Leviticus 18 verse 22. That's what Jesus thinks of homosexual practice. And that was the law that Jesus came to obey and to fulfill. Or as another example, the Apostle Paul. Paul describes homosexual behavior, whether among men or women, as dishonorable and unnatural in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to 26. The word apostle means sent. Who sent Paul to preach the gospel and to write letters like that one? Jesus. Jesus. The words of Paul in scripture are words that come with the authority of the one that sent Paul, Jesus Christ. Not only that, but it's something of a a false uh, argument to say that Jesus didn't speak. Yes, you'll not see the word homosexuality coming out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospels. But in a sense, it it didn't need to, friends, because Jesus was asked about marriage and all that goes with marriage. We read about it earlier in Matthew 19. Matthew 19. When Jesus was questioned on the issue of divorce and marriage, he defended the the sanctity of marriage and he quoted again from Genesis 2, verse 24, the two shall become one flesh, the man and the woman in the marriage relationship. And even if we didn't have the teaching of the rest of scripture on sexual sin, friends, the fact that Jesus didn't talk specifically about homosexuality during his earthly ministry does not mean that he approved of it. He also never talked specifically about pedophilia or internet pornography or any other number of sexual sins. Just because Jesus didn't address every specific example of sexual behavior doesn't mean that we just assume he approves of it. So That's one objection, the the idea that Jesus hasn't spoken to it when in fact all through the Bible he has But secondly, another objection that you might come across um, to your biblical understanding of, of sexuality and marriage. People will say, you can't deny a person something that is just such a fundamental part of who they are. This is who they are. You can't just ignore that. You can't take away their sense of identity. And this in many ways is the heart of the conflict today between the arguments of the LGBT lobby on the one hand and the doctrines of scripture on the other, what they claim is that someone is homosexual or transgender or whatever it may be, that it's somehow in their nature, that it's who they are. It's not just a feeling or an attraction, it's their whole identity. Well, friends... There is absolutely no biological or physiological evidence for that belief. None. A person, it's simply the fact that a person is not gay in the same way that they are tall or short or black or white. Those are are false equations. There is not one shred of evidence for it. Nancy Piercy, whose book I mentioned last week, uh, her book's called Love Thy Body. Uh, commenting on the lack of any scientific evidence for what used to be called a gay gene or anything like that, she says, uh, biologically, physiologically, chromosomally and anatomically, males and females are counterparts to one another. That's how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. There's just no evidence in the scientific makeup of human beings that this is somehow a part of someone's physiological identity. Now, obviously, regardless of that, we cannot deny that some people are strongly attracted to people of the same sex and that they act upon those attractions. But, friends, a feeling or an attraction, no matter how strong or even all consuming it may be, does not define who you are. Some people are by nature angrier than others, some people are more paranoid or more easily depressed, or more easily frustrated. I don't have the right to do whatever I feel like doing if I'm angry. I can't identify as angry and then just expect that people will excuse whatever behaviour I come out with if I'm angry. The fact is that all of our natures, not physically or biologically, but to begin with spiritually, are flawed. The impulses that we have, the desires that we have, be they sexual or otherwise, are tainted and ruined by our sinful nature. And so in a sense, if someone says, well, this is the way I am. Well, there is, yes, a sense in which that's true. You can't deny that you're experiencing whatever form of attraction it is. But that is rooted in a sinful nature. It's within all of us and will manifest itself in different ways. But as well as that, friends, another way that we can answer this particular objection, that this is who someone is. Friends, all of us are far more. We are far more than whatever sexual attractions we might have. Be they legitimate, according to scripture, or otherwise. And so to reduce your existence as a human being to what kind of person you are sexually attracted to is tragic. It drastically undervalues who you are as a human being. Piercy says, The Bible offers a more compelling script that defines our identity in terms of the image of God. That's who we are. We are image bearers of God, created to reflect his character. We are loved and redeemed children of God, if we're in Christ, obviously. When we centre our lives on these truths then our identity is secure no matter what our sexual feelings are, whether they change or don't change. That, by the way, is one of the lies of the LGBT lobby, that someone who is supposedly gay cannot change. Nancy Pierce in her book is full of examples of people who have left that lifestyle behind, who have been saved by God's grace, who have become married to someone of the opposite sex and even begun to enjoy family life. So we would say, friends, don't reduce being human to an impulse or an attraction that you might have now, but maybe won't have later. That might never leave you fulfilled. Instead, find a new and complete identity as a redeemed image bearer of God in Jesus Christ. Third objection that's often made to the biblical teaching on sexuality and marriage People will say you're picking and choosing from the Bible when you say that homosexuality is a sin. Uh, people will say you're picking and choosing, that you're, you're, not, uh, you're, you're choosing certain things the Bible says and you're getting all worked up about those and you're ignoring other things. Twice in Leviticus, Leviticus 18 verse 22 and Leviticus 20 verse 13, homosexuality is described as, quote, an abomination. It's a very strong word. It means something that is purposefully going against the moral character and commands of God. Uh, And those are are usually the the verses that cranky Christians use when they call into the Nolan Show, when these sorts of things are debated, uh, when things like radio phone-ins. Norman from Bangor or Jimmy from Bushmills will call in. They will be very well-meaning, but they will sound very angry, And they quote these verses. Homosexuality is an abomination, they say. And what does the presenter say next? Well, they say you're picking and choosing which parts of the Bible to pay attention to. Because Exodus 35.2 says that if you break the Sabbath, you should be put to death. And Leviticus 11.7 says you can't touch the skin of a dead pig. And Deuteronomy 22.9 says you can't plant two different types of crops in the same field. So why are you Christians getting all worked up about homosexuality. And not all these other laws that you find in the Bible. Well, well usually you'll not have time to explain this in a radio phone in show. Which is maybe a good reason not to phone in. But nonetheless. Uh, one of the things we need to explain to people. Is that the Old Testament contains different types of laws. There's the moral law. Which is summed up in the Ten Commandments. And the moral law applies to all people. In all places at all times. There's also what we call the civil law in the Old Testament. This was uh, the body of law given to the people of Israel for their, uh, for their legal interactions with one another uh, in the promised land. <coughs> and finally the Old Testament also includes ceremonial laws. And these are the laws concerned with the people's worship. And all of that worship of course revolved around animal sacrifice. And since Jesus Christ has provided the full and final sacrifice for sin and since we worship in entirely uh, new ways through the work that he has done and since the, uh, the, the church is no longer confined to that nation of Israel and, and Jesus Christ has kept all those civil laws of the Old Testament, there is a, a measure in which those laws are fulfilled in Christ and have passed away and don't anymore apply to us. But the moral law does still apply to us. The the, the Ten Commandments for all people in all times and places. So the question then becomes, is homosexuality a breach of the Ten Commandments, the moral law? And the answer is yes. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Because what we find in the New Testament through the teaching of Christ and the teaching of Paul... Is that adultery really can be defined as any sin outside of, any any sexual behaviour outside of sexual intimacy between a husband and wife in marriage. Remember Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says lust and the ways that it's expressed are forms of adultery. They're invalid forms of sexual expression. Another word that the New Testament uses repeatedly for any form of sexual sin is a Greek word, porneia. Porneia. It's the word Paul uses, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, when he says, flee from sexual immorality. And friends, again, that is a word that covers any and every type of sexual sin you could think of. Sex outside of marriage, adulterous sexual behavior, fornication, Homosexuality, whatever. All of it, all of it, is sinful. And it is against God's law, be it heterosexual or homosexual. And again, people might ask why? Why does God care what I do? Or why does God uh, wh- why do you care about these particular things? Friends, God cares not only because He has designed them and so deserves obedience in them as our Creator. But because God wants what is best for us. He wants us to be people who are fulfilled and complete and secure in our identity as image bearers of God. And by grace, children of God adopted through Christ. And sex outside of marriage, any form of it, is not what is best for us. And does not bring that sense of peace and security and fulfillment that our media Brainwashes people into thinking that it does. Tim Keller explains it this way: He says, Sexual intimacy is God's appointed way for two people to say reciprocally to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. And so when we have sex outside of marriage, he says, we are essentially lying with our bodies. We are lying with our bodies. Our actions are, quote, saying that we are united on all levels, when in reality, we are not. We are putting on an act. We are being dishonest. And that's why if people are honest enough, they will tell you that there is a sense of brokenness, and a sense of shame, and a sense of confusion that pervades people in casual sexual activities. Final objection that we will face for our belief about these things. People will say, Christians are treating as strange and abnormal something that is perfectly normal. The homosexual campaigners are some of the most successful propagandists in the history of Western culture. That's no exaggeration. You can go back and you can find some of the the pamphlets and literature that they produced for their own groups about 30-40 years ago. Uh, the roadmap that they had to the normalisation of their lifestyle, and they have been incredibly successful. Whether it was through uh, their targeting of, of media, the television shows like Friends or Will & Grace in the 90s, whether it's today with the demand for every company you can think of uh, plastering the rainbow flag over their product several times a year, uh, the LGBT lobby has pushed this message of normalisation. That to be homosexual is to be just living an entirely normal lifestyle. I'm sure you've noticed recently that if you watched 10 adverts during a TV show which portray families or couples, at least 7 or 8 of those families, I'm not exaggerating at the minute, it is literally 7 or 8 out of 10 of those families or couples are portrayed as gay couples. Despite the fact that people who identify as gay make up somewhere between 1 to 2% of our population. But that's the that is very that is very um, purposeful. That that is very much um, designed to be that way by those who have campaigned for these things. They, their their strategy is to overrepresent, uh, to to blast a message of normality. Don't just settle for acceptance. Push for celebration and affirmation. And if the celebration or affirmation doesn't come, write people off as homophobic or backward, or hateful. But the reality is, friends, that there is nothing normal about the lifestyle of homosexuals. It's actually a dark, depressing lifestyle, which many who are caught up in it long to escape. And I say that having spoken to people who have struggled with this issue, or who have, by God's grace, put this behind them and come out of this lifestyle... It is nothing like how it is portrayed in the Rainbow Pride celebrations. Study was carried out by a homosexual couple who wanted to show that homosexual relationships were stable and happy and loving just as much as heterosexual ones. What they actually found was that only 8% of men and 7% of women had ever had a relationship that lasted for more than three years. Promiscuity among homosexual men is not a stereotype, it's reality, it's the norm. Alcohol abuse, drug abuse, depression and suicide are all far higher in the homosexual community. And again, contrary to what the media will tell you, that's not all the fault of a a homophobic society. It's because people have fallen for the lie that they will find some sense of satisfaction and completion in living this lifestyle And they've been left sorely disappointed. It's also true to say, there are certain parts of the country that I would probably be uh, sued for saying this, but it's reality, that doctors who treat people living a homosexual lifestyle are trained to look for several diseases of one kind or another as a matter of routine. And so very often people will say, in defence of homosexual practice, they're not doing anyone any harm friends a glance at the statistics time taken to listen to some of the stories tells you that this is not true they're hurting themselves and they're hurting each other and this is true as well by the way for heterosexual people who are committing sexual sin who are going from one relationship to the other one experience to the other it's leaving people not happy, the original sense of that word the original meaning of the word gay but it's leaving people in dark sad places spiritually speaking and so we we must resist friends, We, we must counter graciously and humbly but we must counter nonetheless this lie that this is just a normal way to live, that it's just one more legitimate way to enjoy a happy life it's not a happy life for many of those caught up in it And so the last thing to consider this morning again is is how Christians should respond, and we'll do this very briefly as we close, but how Christians should respond uh, to this barrage of propaganda and contrary living that we're seeing around us today. And friends, we must respond in the same way that I suggested last week on the issue of abortion. We must respond with compassion, but not compromise. Compassion, but not compromise. When we have the opportunity to witness to someone who may be caught up in the lies and sins of this movement, uh, we must respond with compassion, not compromise. Again, remember the response of Jesus. We saw last week in John chapter 8 to the woman caught up in adultery, caught in the act of adultery. What did Jesus say to her? Oh, he, he drove the others away and he said to the woman, I do not condemn you. I do not condemn you. But then he said to her, Go and from now on sin no more. Sin no more. He didn't excuse her sin, but he says, I'm not condemning you because Jesus himself would take her condemnation on the cross. Compassion, not compromise. And too many Christians and too many churches have failed to show compassion to those who have lived or are tempted to live the homosexual lifestyle. We've fallen into the trap laid for us by the LGBT lobby. They've pushed and pushed and agitated and agitated and some of us in the Christian community have made the mistake of getting agitated right back at them and acting as though that, that homosexuality is some kind of sin that is liable to, uh, that, that it's in some category worse, that it's worse than any other type of sexual sin or any other sin in general. We're worried about, yes, we're worried uh, perhaps at times about where our society is going with these things. Perhaps Christian parents are fearful for the education or the experience of their children. We might be concerned about the freedom of speech in the church to keep, keep on proclaiming the gospel. But friends, as legitimate as those concerns are, it does not excuse a lack of compassion for those who are caught up in the loneliness and the emotional brokenness that casual sexual lifestyles will bring. And as I said earlier, we should be careful to differentiate between individuals who may have uh, become confused in their own sense of identity and got caught up in these things. We should differentiate between them and those who lobby and push the propaganda and push the agenda. They're not always the same groups. And it's out of compassion and concern for the well-being of our fellow human beings, whoever they may be. Whatever labels they may put upon themselves. It's out of compassion for them that we cannot compromise on our beliefs about marriage and sexuality. Because we know that God's word brings life and that sin brings death. And so we must point everyone, no matter how they identify, no matter what kind of lifestyle they are living. We must point everyone to the same place That we ourselves as Christians return to every single day the cross of Christ. See when someone comes and accuses us of picking and choosing what we believe from scripture in the way I described earlier. What they're really trying to say is you're a hypocrite. You Christians you tell us how awful homosexuality is. As if you've obeyed all those other commandments in the Bible. As if you're perfect people when you're not. And friends, what we should say to that is, you're absolutely right. We are not perfect people at all. And we as as Christians have our own sins, sexual or otherwise, which deserve the same death and punishment according to God's law that these other sins do as well. All of our sin is abominable. People get very worked up in saying homosexuality is is an abomination, The book of Proverbs says that pride is an abomination. It says that deceit is an abomination. Friends, all sin is an abomination. All sin is grievous, despicable and a disgusting violation of the way that God wants us to live. But it's not that we think that we are any better than anyone else. It's that we have found a saviour. And in that saviour, an identity that is better than any identity you will find anywhere else. And without excusing the sins that the world celebrates, which is what Christians increasingly, sadly, are doing right now. Without compromising at all on what the Bible says about sex and marriage. We need, by God's grace, to show compassion. And to tell people about the one who took the punishment that our sin deserves upon himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. The world proudly declares, in the the words of Lady Gaga, I was born this way. Jesus says, you must be born again. He came to take the condemnation, the judgment that all of our sin deserves. He came to give us a new identity. Not an identity that reduces us down to our feelings or our attractions. But an identity that will last forever. As adopted children of God. More loved and accepted and cherished than we will ever be. In any relationship or experience elsewhere. The world says love is love. It's an empty slogan. The scripture says This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, to provide the sacrifice that all of our sins deserve. Amen.